more and more people are shorting her investments all the time. That's not a fun place to be. And if I was in a similar spot, we're going to talk about some of my investments uh, coming up soon. Maybe I'll be claiming we're not in a bubble, depending on (laughs) the hate mail that I get. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Wait, you're on the road? Keeping you on your toes, man. Keeping you on your toes. That looks like a uh, Hilton. (laughs) That it is. (laughs) Yes. One of the most impressive or saddest moments of your life. <laughs> I, I just have, I've, I've nothing to say with your like random obscure knowledge of, of hotelery. But yeah, I am. I'm in a Hilton. A Hilton. Have you ever worked with the consultant that like, I, I worked with this one consultant. I, th- I may have told this before, but he, he was home so infrequently that one time he went home and drove to what he thought was his house and he knocked on the door and someone else lived there. <laughs> and then he like called his wife and was like, do we live somewhere else? And she was like, yeah, like it's over here now. And she didn't even consult uh, moving. Wait, hold up, hold on. At first, I thought you were saying that he was home so infrequently that he went to the wrong house. No, 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 no. He went to the right house, but his his wife wife had moved. His wife had sold their family (laughs) house, purchased a new family house without telling him. At least that's how the story goes. I don't want to laugh at that. That's a wow. Oh, it's so depressing. It's so depressing. All right. And who knows if it's true, but that's what I was told. Can we we right quick dive into the fishbowl? I need to get past that. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. You want to kick off with some listener mail? Oh, yeah. Love it. All right. All right. This is from uh, Adam. Physicist, really smart guy, also a good value investor. We might have him on the show sometime. So this is my favorite piece of listener mail in a while because, I mean, I'm going to read it to you, but basically my translation was like, Dougals is an idiot. That's that's how it came across for me. <laughs> so first, he talks about ISAs, which we talked about, income sharing agreements. And he, yep. he says, I don't know that I agree with 100% of this, but I always appreciate his perspective. He says, ISAs are not remotely debt. It's more like equity. There's no leverage. And if your income gets cut in half, the interest coverage doesn't sh- uh, stays the same. It doesn't get cut in half. You can't be forced to default on it. And then he mentions, and I know, I mean, you know the education space so well, Dougals, that I'm curious for this because I never did the deep dive on ISAs that I wanted to. But he says, most ISA structures I've seen are progressive. And you do not pay if your income is below something like 50K. So it's far different than a student loan. Thoughts on that? Is that it? That's the thing that caught me in That's point one. That's point one. Okay, okay. All right, fair enough. Oftentimes, you can go into a lot of nuance around topics in order to prove or or disprove something. Uh, The definition of debt is you give me money and I owe it back to you. I think you can can go into nuances saying that it's not as bad as most debts. You You can talk about how... Uh, most ISAs, blah, 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 but not all ISAs are created equal. They have different execution levers. And to say that it's not debt ignores the definition of debt. I just love the the firing your eyes. You get so fired up when we talk about ISAs and I haven't figured out the backstory here, but I just love no, this. I, I, so actually... I, I think it's so interesting because it's there's clearly like this this nuance piece that's important here. Like 
if you if there's a certain income threshold then it is debt if you're above the threshold and it's not debt if you're below the threshold right like it just seems like a more flexible and forgiving structure than your typical student debt but it's probably such where you just can't make broad generalizations and you'd have to look at the amount of traditional student debt someone might take versus isa versus you know like it's kind of apples to oranges and so it's hard to compare I, I think that your statement that says that it is it's more forgiving in some circumstances, it's not as bad, it's not as punitive. Yeah. I can go with all that, but it is by definition debt. You give someone something, they owe it back to you. Now you can say there are certain triggers that make that so you didn't, or certain triggers if you didn't hit, right, then you wouldn't owe it back, but it's still debt. You could go into loans and say that there are certain loans that in certain circumstances you don't have to pay you back. Don't, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's still, you can talk about convertible notes. True. Where like true. a convertible note can become equity at a certain, but it's still debt at that time. Like it just is debt. There, there isn't. A, I don't know how you can dance around that. I, I think that the point that they're yeah, Adam, making, yeah. right? Uh, Adam, sorry. Uh, I think the point that Adam is making is probably more that it's not as bad as debt, or that it's not bad. And I, I sure we can talk about that, but it's debt. Let me let me consult my good friend Miriam Webster. <laughs> you know, no, it's funny. Like I've never. In the past two weeks, I've met, pet, spent more time thinking about the true definition of debt than I ever thought I would. Because I so, thought it was pretty self-evident. Two words. Definition number one, merriamwebster.com. Two words. Something owed. Yeah, and so in an ISA, you owe future Done. income. Done. Definition. <laughs> Done. <laughs> oh, man. You're more fun than a Hilton. It actually, this, I think... Uh, you know, to the broader point, I'm being crass here, but to the broader point, I I think that uh, it's it's worth a, a lot of conversation because, again, not all ISAs are created equal. It's really interesting. There was a um, a friend of mine before that went to, he's from Australia and went to school there. And basically from like college wise, once you leave college, you owe, similar to like what was stated by Adam here, you owe the money back once you have a job, once you make a certain amount of income. Yeah, He left the country and it's in the US, so he'd like never... <laughs> he doesn't know anything. Oh, yeah. Right. That's what but I'm I, talking about. I think, you know, similar. I, I think that it's it's really it's interesting that concept, right? And I do think that it's more forgiving than a lot of the structures that we have around student loan debt today. But I still do think it's debt. No, you get me so curious and and so our listeners know, like you are well versed in the education space. So if you had if I forced you to make a blanket statement, would you say ISAs are probably better than the typical US debt structure today? If I had to give a one word answer, I'd say yes. Okay. The longer answer I'd provide is, and this is, um, I make crazy analogies, you know, but I think it's similar to some of the thoughts that I have around the crypto space. And that I think the structure of the ISA is very powerful for what we could do with education. I think we haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. It's not refined and it's not. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. To me, um, go ahead. I think there's also a point around who's delivering the ISA because a lot of organizations that are putting ISAs out there are for-profit organizations that are trying to figure out the ISA business model. And I yes. think the that that starts to make it a little bit more hairy. No one's figured out the ISA business model such that it, it works to make a scaled organization yet. Um, but if you think about going back to that example I brought up around Australia, where you have the government effectively is running the ISA, then I think that does start to be more favorable for individuals, but the ISA itself as a structure, I do think is a, like, it's a good thing. And we, I think we should figure out how to scale that in a way that's good for the consumer 
And that's also potentially a, a business model that someone could run efficiently and effectively. Yeah. So the federal government plays such a huge role in the student loan market. And we talked about this, uh, gosh, maybe five or six weeks back in, in how they play such a role in the inflation of the cost of college education in this country, because both sides can get around this idea of, oh, well, let's give more money for student loans because we want everyone to be able to so-called afford an education. How come the federal government doesn't have an ISA arm? Like This seems just obvious to me. There are a lot of reasons why the federal government doesn't do things. I think generally the... <laughs> I think there are. I think a main reason for this is probably that it hasn't been the way that things are run, and there's so many systems that would have to be unwound in order for that to be um, something that's implemented. But I think that's the that's that's primarily. I think a lot of it. So even even going back to um, what you were saying, I can't remember if this was last week or the week before, but we were discussing the defaulting, right, and how it's yeah. really difficult to to write off or discharge student loan debt. And I think part of what, what was discussed makes sense in that basically the fact that it's so hard to discharge makes it so that people are giving loans that they don't even care about underwriting effectively because you know you're going to get it back no matter what, yep. right? And so yep. then more people are taking on debt. Breaks and there's the a negative market, side yeah. of that. There's the negative side of that. And the positive side of that is even people that are from, I'll say, disadvantaged situations that actually, if you did underwrite them properly, wouldn't be able to go to school, can go to school. I only state that not to say that it is good or bad, but just to say that these systems are complicated and difficult to unwind. You know, no, I love that perspective. And um, I, I often think about things like from a cold hearted, like finance perspective, uh, not not necessarily cold hearted, but like peer numbers. And yeah, no, that's a, a good point. So the other thing Adam mentioned, and Adam, thank you for the email. I won't spend too much time on it because uh, we were joking around this. He just was mentioning that in the fraternal twins study, they were using the twins as a control, and that's how they pinned it on genetics. So uh, we were kind of going back and forth about, hey, they might talk to each other. Well, obviously, they talk to each other. But he he's pointing out, and I think fairly, uh, especially if our tone came across in the previous came across incorrectly in the previous conversation, that's kind of the only way you pin down genetics. And to make the conclusion of that study, you're stuck with things like, oh, they probably talk to each other. <laughs> you know, like it's it, there's just no other way to do it unless I think at one point you said like if the twins were separated at birth or moved to different countries or something, then. Uh, you could even have a stronger control around yeah. <laughs> measuring Rip their families habits, apart but... for the sake of academic papers. Yeah, exactly. Like we're we're done with you. You you cannot see your brother for twenty years so that we can figure out if you're a good investor or not based on genetics. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that that's yeah, that's perfectly fair. If I did come Go. across too crass in that in the the ISA piece, I didn't mean to. I was just we're we're here <laughs> for entertainment man. value in the end. You're good, Adam. Thanks for the mail. Thanks for listening. Keep them coming, guys. You can hit us on Twitter at SkippyDougals and SkippyDougals at gmail.com. Douglas, what's you. in your fishbowl today? Do you know where I want to start? I mean, hopefully it's Alibaba. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, where do you so want to start? Your, your, question, your question was hedgehogs. really a statement. Of, hedgehogs. Yeah, yeah I want to talk about uh, this two-part article uh, that was released last week called Are You a Hedgehog or a Fox? It came out in American Consequences. And then I want to roll that into an article in The Institutional Investor. That's how millennial investors lost millions on Bill Ackman's SPAC. I'm going to have a, a two-parter here, uh, but hopefully I think the first part shouldn't go that, that long. So hey, I love- Fun fact mm -hmm. uh, to interrupt, I've been featured in The Institutional Investor before. 
Did you know this? I, I love it. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> yeah. I know some people who know some people. Anyway, tell me about hedgehogs. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I I'm a big fan of the concept of the hedgehog and the fox. Um, it's an Isaiah Berlin uh, essay from 60 years ago. I'll give you the the high level and then dive into what this article is about. So the high level of the Isaiah Berlin article is actually based off of this. Um, I'm going to get the pronunciation of this name wrong, but there was a poet way back in the day, Archicolus. Uh, one of his one of his most famous quotes was the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. So the concept of the hedgehog and the fox is you can have individuals who are foxes, who are sly, they're cunning, they try a whole bunch of things, they have all these moves, kind of like if you think about a fox out in the wild, you have to be able to survive multiple situations. Then you have the hedgehog, which is good at one thing. You can do one thing and you can do it really well. So this article brings up as a, in the non-investing world, it brings up Tiger Woods as the ultimate hedgehog. Like from the time you're two, you pick up a golf club and all that you've ever done is play golf and you're incredible at it. And the article then points out how most successful investors, according to this article, also are hedgehogs. They have a set of principles they follow and that's the way they invest. They bring up uh, Chris Mayer, Warren Buffett, Howard Marks as examples of that. They have their, their principles, they go about it. And then they said there was one, one Fox investor who they think was great. Well, not only one, but there's one that they bring up who they think is also really good, which is Jim Rogers of the Quantum Fund, who invested with George Soros for a while, right? And said, that's someone that could just pick up a whole bunch of things, analyze a lot of different assets, et cetera, and invest. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what this article is about, how most great investors are hedgehogs. It's possibly a fox, but most great investors are hedgehogs. So before I go on, any any questions or thoughts before I roll this into Bell Ackman? I mean, I just was Googling hedgehogs. They're kind of cute. And I, I really like when they roll up. How many times does Sonic need to come up on this podcast? How (laughs) how amazing is this? Such a good point. It's the thing. We got to bring him on the show. So so to roll this into the Bill Bill Ackman piece, Isaiah Berlin, Archicolas, however you pronounce the old poet, when they talk about how the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one thing, like what is the one big thing that the hedgehog knows? Uh, To protect itself. Exactly. The hedgehog can roll up like a ball, put its spikes out, protect itself. And the article says that that one thing, if you translate it into investor terms, is being able to avoid catastrophic loss. Like the thing that the hedgehog does really well is to be able to manage risk, to be able to defend itself, to be able to not die, right? That's the one big thing. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of that in the past. So we don't have to go into detail, but just about avoiding the death line, right? Staying well, in the game. I mean, the the Buffett quote there is like, basically cash is life, cash is air. You know, like he might fall into hedgehog category if we were classifying he probably would more likely than fox because he's been slow to move into tech in areas that he doesn't understand right but he did evolve to a more progressive uh piece of value investing but yes he's always concerned about you know rule number one is not lose money and rule number two is see rule number one right like yeah, exactly it's, it's all about surviving that's exactly right and so this uh, article, How Millennial Investors Lost Millions on Bill Ackman's Back, you can guess from the title, these were not hedgehogs. This article is such a good lesson for people to read. It, it's phenomenal. I'm, I, I'm not going to cover the whole article, but I do want to hit some key points from the lead-in story to the article because I, I think it's all the things. So SPACs, again, are special purpose acquisition companies they're basically shell corporations that go public with a whole boatload of cash um, with the mission to go buy something, right? That's, that's a SPAC. 
Bill Ackman's yeah. big SPAC. It was called Tontine, and he raised it late last year, and it was the largest SPAC ever, $4 billion, over $4 billion. Yeah, and let me just jump in. So Bill Ackman, if you're not familiar, is the founder and CEO of Pershing Square Capital, a Harvard guy worth about $3 billion, known mostly as an activist investor. That might help some yep. of the listeners. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, thanks for that background. And last year, he got a he got momentarily also famous because he had a short on the on the stock market right before the uh, coronavirus crash, and then sold at the bottom. Yeah. Uh, so he just made like a whole quick buck, and I, and I that's tied to this actually because that did put him on the map for last year when a, when a lot of retail investors entered the space right and got all Robin Hoodie. They then see this guy who they're like is obviously a market genius because of what he just did. And he he has his track record, oh, yeah. right? Really impressive like retail, track record. Yeah, yeah, very impressive track record. But the retail investors that might have been new on the scene also saw, oh, like Wonderkin, right? So they see this and then he raises $4 billion in this largest SPAC when SPACs were also getting hot with it. What this article lays out for this, this lead-in story was there was a psychiatrist who was not named in the article. He basically is 35 years old. He comes from, he's a, comes from a family, um, immigrant household, right? And he is not a trained financier, but he is a trained psychiatrist. And he lays that out himself by saying, and I quote, just because I have specialized training doesn't mean I can't be just as much of a fool as the guy next door, is <laughs> what he says. Um, so what he did was he started planning, he started saving money um, as he was doing his residency, I believe it was. And he got up a few hundred thousand dollars and said, I'm making some money on the, you know, in this investment game over the last couple of years, I see this SPAC and it seems like a sure thing. He actually says, I considered this a safe calculated bet. Man, we don't give investment advice on this show, but if he would have been listening to the show, he, uh, I don't think he would have thrown We've been trashing this concept and saying it has a very low probability of success, uh, since day one. And the, the way his safe calculated bet, the way that he goes about investing in the SPAC is by buying call options. Oh, come so on. he, he, he buys call options at a strike price of $25 on Tontine and get to give a little background on options and call options and how you make money and how you don't. Options are a way to leverage basically by buying, you're buying the right by paying a premium in order to buy a stock at a predetermined price. And so you're basically saying, I'm going to buy, I'm making this up. If he's, but if he's buying at a strike price of 25 and let's say he's buying a hundred shares, right? So he's buying one contract um, that's a hundred shares of this back and the SPAC goes to 50 bucks, he may have bought that contract, right, for like a couple thousand dollars. And he might be yeah. able to then sell that contract for tens of thousands of dollars. So that's yeah. like the effective leverage that occurs. However, if the contract is under $25, you get nothing, right? Because you have, mm -hmm. you have the right to buy it at 25. If it's less than obvious, you're not going to buy it. So he put everything, everything that he had, his entire investment portfolio into this this uh, contracts, this set of contracts, right? At one point, it was worth over a million dollars. So he bought June 18 calls. This is just a couple of months ago that it was called June 18 calls with a strike price of $25. The stock on that date was worth $23. Okay. So nothing. Yeah. Z everything yeah. that they uh, that he had invested before, all the money he'd saved, all the long nights and weekends, everything gone 
at that point. And when he says he considered it to be a safe calculated bet, the reason he says this is because he'd seen the track record of Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman was making rap videos and putting them out on, on the line, right? About how great this is. There was like a guaranteed purchase that was going to happen in Q1. That didn't happen. Then, then there was in a, on June 4th of this year, finally, the SPAC didn't say that it was going to buy a company, but it was going to buy 10% um, of Warner Music, I think it was, yeah. something like yep. that. And so that was, you no, know, Universal Music. It was going to buy 10% of Universal Music. wasn't going to close until the fall. But regardless, yep. nothing got bought. And so his, his takeaway outside of, I should have stuck to psychiatry, was he went on Reddit and he said, don't buy calls on pre-DA SPACs, which means deal announcement. So don't buy calls on pre-deal announcement SPACs is the takeaway. My takeaway is a bit more abstract, but I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to hand it over. Uh, my takeaway is don't buy calls. Don't buy SPACs. Have some diversification. And uh, there's like five more things. I mean, this just, this guy doesn't need my sympathy. This just makes me sad. It, it's, I, that's a really unfortunate. I think it's such an important story to read because it's not, this also, this person isn't a lot of, you like what we discussed, um, the couple right? That was on TikTok investors. Like I buy on the way up, sell on the way down. Yeah, it's like yeah. YOLO. Like that's not what he was doing. He wasn't like YOLOing fully, at least according to the tone that's in this. I don't, I wasn't in his home, right? And seeing what he did, but I mean, he, he went out on the limb and did some recklessness, but it seems like he legitimately wasn't trying to YOLO or like give it to the man. It was, I like, mean, no, there, there's some component of trying to get rich quick i think yeah, that is true because that is true. That, and so that that basically gets to yellow in a way i mean when you go back to hedgehog versus fox right and you think about um and sorry to do this but you think about cryptos and all the exciting stuff happening in cryptos and the fact that a lot of people feel like they can get rich quick i totally see all the foxes in that space being like oh the hedgehog doesn't even they can't comprehend how cutting edge this is yeah or like whatever else and it's an interesting dynamic between the those two like investing types, right? Um, in a, in some cases, I think they're few and far between. But the fox actually might get a concept more quickly and therefore get wealthy in short order. But it's just really, really rare. One one thing that you just said makes me think about the I'm going to overblow this a little bit, but the Michael Burry feud that is now oh, going yes. on between he and Kathy Wood. Because you you just said the hedgehog doesn't understand how cutting edge this is, right? What was Kathy Wood's reaction when when Michael Burry came out and said that he was he was well, buying put options? Let's reset. So Michael Burry Burry of uh, Big Short fame with the Michael Bush Michael Lewis book and movie, who basically called the housing crisis and made tons of money because of it. He now runs Scion Capital Management, and um, he recently has started betting against ARK Investment, who's run by Kathy Wood. And she's been mentioned on the show previously in crypto conversation, a lot of conversations. Uh, Dougals likes to call her portfolio a YOLO trip to nonsense. But if you're not familiar, she bets on cutting-edge technology. And so her stocks are high-flying momentum stocks that are very expensive in terms of metrics like uh, PDE ratios. So when the news comes out that Michael Blur Blurry, I can never say his name, <laughs> uh, bets against her portfolio, 
her response. I don't have the tweet in front of me, Dougals. Should we pull up the actual tweet? Yeah, let, let's pull it. Let's pull up the tweet. So she says, to his credit, Michael Burry made a great call based on fundamentals and recognized the calamity brewing in the housing slash mortgage market. I do not believe that he understands the fundamentals that are creating explosive growth and investment opportunities in the innovation space. <laughs> what is the innovation space? Just to, just to be clear. The, so <laughs> Kathy Wood is imploding right now. I'm, and I'm not even saying that her funds are going to implode. I'm saying that she <laughs> seems to be via social media imploding right now. I state that because some of the things that she's saying are, are what you say when you are actually somewhat desperate. And I, I don't see her in day to day, but there must be something under the hood because there was something else that I saw her say. She came out and said, we could not be further from a bubble. Yeah, that's I, not I, a fact. That, yeah. That's not fact. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is not like every piece of evidence. No, nearly. I shouldn't say every. Yeah, There's yeah. so many pieces of evidence that show that we are in bubble territory. That doesn't mean it's going to pop tomorrow. That doesn't mean it's going to pop next year or any of that. But there's so much to say we couldn't be further shows me that you don't understand what a bubble is, first of all. Well, and that scares me. I don't me. think... I don't think it's that she doesn't understand. I think I, I hate like throwing shade or talking ill of people, but oh, oh, Dougal's is giving me a look. But no, like she she's protecting her uh, wallet, I would say. Like she can't go around saying we're in a bubble because that would that would be a reason to short her funds, which is what smart people like Michael Burry are doing. Yes, I, I actually no, I can't say yes. So. <laughs> There's I, I get I get what you're saying and I, I lean into that. I think that the the reason that I, I state that she's imploding is because per what you said, she can't go around saying we're in a bubble. Fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. However, when you say we can't be further from a bubble, that's not not saying we're in a bubble. Like that's she's she's trying to and from what I see, it feels like I don't know her. I don't actually know what she's trying to do, but it sounds like she's trying too aggressively to state how safe things are that there must be some like you know duck looks calm over the water but underneath is getting buck wild that has to be gone on these statements are not of well, someone of 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 like sturdy ground yeah if i'm armchair quarterbacking this she probably just th feels threatened because more yeah. and more people are shorting her investments all the time that's not a fun place to be and if i was in a similar spot we're going to talk about some of my investments uh, coming up soon Maybe I'll be claiming we're not in a bubble, depending on <laughs> the hate mail that I get. All right. Like, I know I, I don't mean to. Well, I guess I can't say I don't mean to throw shade because that's probably what exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> but let's, let's uh, kindly throw shade, though. Yeah, I she um, I mean, she's in a she's in a pickle right now. You're right. I mean, someone someone's coming out with an ETF that is shorting an individual portfolio manager. Right. Like that. That's a pickle. Michael Burry, who has a lot of respect right in, in in areas like this is yeah. buying tens of millions of dollars right of put options against you like that is a position where she has to feel really vulnerable and she's down this year so far not by a heck of a lot but she's down in a time where the market is up double digits like that's not a good position to be in so i'm sure she's getting a lot of emails from investors and feels like she has to come out and say some stuff um it's just that the if i were her pr person i would say that 
seemingly desperate statements isn't the way to do it, but saying things Ooh. like there's there's more room to run. Say say how much you believe in the in the stocks and state that and 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 don't make platitudes about explosive growth in the in innovation space, which exactly I, I don't know what industry that is. I haven't seen the SIC code for that. I all right. Anyway, sorry. I'm not throwing shade. You just went sick throw, code throw, on throw. me. Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> wow. So this is why we'll, we'll wrap up with Kathy Wood. Uh, but this is why many of the investors I respect most have periods where they go, hey, there's nothing to buy right now. I'm going to cash. Have your money back. Like, she's not the type that's ever going to think that, I, I think is fair to say. But if she did, I would have so much more. If she had, like, I've had an awesome 24 months where I've been one of the best performing funds around, like, and now things are a little too hot and I'm taking a step back. Like that'd be amazing, but that's not how this works for 99% of humans. So she's not an envi enviable uh, position right now, but alas. Yeah. So, let's, yeah. uh, let's switch gears. Um, let's talk about something more fun. Why, why don't you spit a little bit on Jack Ma? All right. So this ties in, uh, one, I think it's like episode six Dougal's. We did a whole episode, or at least a big part of it, called Where Where is Jack Ma? And it was just us speculating about how he'd fallen off the map and what that meant. And that obviously ties to Alibaba, the company that he founded and is the face of, right? So what's interesting about Alibaba in the value investing community is that folks like Charlie Munger and Manish uh, Pabrai and Guy Spear and Lee Lu have all taken positions recently. And I should say the Li Lu uh, thing is speculation because he's not required to uh, publish his holdings like the rest of them are. Also, though, Dougal's on the 13F conversation, if you look at um, Whale Wisdom and their, they do like a heat map, Alibaba's in the top 10 of purchases happening fund-wide, which I don't care about as much as like value focus. Another value investor that just took an Alibaba holding is uh, Tom Russo. So, I've been digging into the space uh, because when people like that are all buying at the same time, it just seems like it's worth looking into. It's a, it's a fascinating case, man. Do you have thoughts on Alibaba just as a company or as a potential investment? I'll give a, I'll give a little story here. Yes, I do have thoughts. And I'll give those to you after I get my anecdote. My wife, for probably about the last three months, every now and again, she'll be like, should we be looking at Alibaba? Right. And she'll ask this question. Should we be looking at Alibaba? And I've been saying, one, it hasn't dropped far enough for my for my yeah. own take. Uh, and two, like China hasn't been kind to me recently, uh, which is not a reason to not. But I but I'm like I'm watching China closely to see like every up every other day they're coming out with new like regulation yep. or statements around regulation. So it's just like, let's it hasn't dropped far enough for me. Let's watch more. Um, I've also talked to her over the last couple of months because Monish Pabrai is someone that actually didn't come onto my radar until uh, William Green. But since then, I've talked to her about Monish. And I mentioned two weeks ago or something, I was like, oh, I was just checking out his 13F and saw he took this really big position in, in Alibaba. And she's like throwing up her hands. I'm like, I've been telling you. So anyway. I'm the best so, investor in this household. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Give me the password. Um, so, so anyway, but so I have, I've been watching Alibaba for this year, basically, as it's been uh, declining. Uh, my thought right now is, and I just, I gave you basically two clues to it, is I still don't think it's, for, for my own sake, it hasn't gone far enough down. Alibaba right now is that it's like close to end of um, 2019 price, yeah. which like isn't 
isn't that low. And the to me, the amount of uh, risk that sits in China right now in its regard, and I, I don't have, like Monish and these other folks, they have conversations I am not privy to, right? And so yeah. there, there, there may be things they know or don't know, or they just flat out maybe just be better, right? And so I, I don't have all that information. But so I'm at a position right now as a retail investor where I'm just like, risk is too high and it hasn't fallen that low. Yeah, so it is definitely at 52 week lows. It's been it's been north of 300 bucks a share and it's currently at 158 or something. I'm maybe halfway through my research and we don't give investment advice on the show, but I'll tell you in the 150 range, I start to get really interested. In the 130 range, I feel like I almost have to buy the thing. But the real challenge, the, the real Let's challenge Let's talk here, at 130. Let's talk at 130. Yeah, yeah, right? Is not necessarily about the company. You look at their like revenue growth over the last 10 years and my oh my, that thing's a rocket ship. Now they aren't their margins are dropping and they're not turning that into as much free cash flow as I'd like. But the word monopoly gets thrown around in the space and the threat to the People's Bank of China with Ant Financial seems to be a real thing, yeah. which is like a pro and con, right? In a way, it it's a way for Chinese citizens to be less dependent on a bank that they probably don't love being super dependent on. But the threat that comes with that is the government just being like, you're too much of a threat to this core principle of ours and we're going to squash you or we're going to put you out of business or we're going to hurt your growth prospects. So if this was a US company trading at these multiples, oh man, oh, I would have already oh jumped goodness. in, right? Um, goodness. But it's not that easy. When I start to be in my research cycle, like I am with Alibaba right now, uh, when it pops up on my radar with smart people and everything else, I my one of my favorite pastimes is just a route for the thing to go down. Uh, this week, man, it had some tough days, and I was as happy oh, as yeah. can be. That six so, percent uh, day. Whew. Yeah, I hope this thing continues to fall off cliff. I'll root for negative news out of China, like uh, like no one else, and then uh, we'll see if I actually end up taking a position or not. It is. It's a. It's fascinating because to your point, the prospects of this thing make its current price like almost a no brainer. Like if you if you take away all the macro environment to me, right? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah I mean, it gets compared but, to Amazon. Go ahead, yeah. sorry. Oh no, it, but and this is exactly what you said. Like I'm just repeating what you said. Is that I don't know if it's going to be allowed to make money in the future. Right. <laughs> like, and so it, it could make all the money, and it might not be allowed to make any of the money. <laughs> okay, so that ties back. I'll just hit the high levels too. One of the best articles that I read this week, it's in the Wall Street Journal. It's called Jack Ma's Costliest Business Lesson. China has only one leader. It really details um, not only like Jack Ma's growth, his ideas with Alibaba and Ant Group and everything else, some of the missteps he made. You know, like one of the things that mentioned is uh, in the COVID response area, he kind of showed up and like bought. Um, I think he bought a meal for like frontline workers and thanked them. And and the Chinese government was like pissed. Like, you, you, you don't get any credit for this response. You can't thank these people. And there's a bunch of little missteps like that where he took meetings with uh, President Trump or President Obama, and that was not received lightly. There was one um, get together, I think it was in Seattle with uh, Chinese entrepreneurs, and they each had three minutes to talk to the Chinese president. And Everyone else took three minutes and he took 10 and that was not well received. So he's been battling this. I'm the next 
Bezos or Gates or Steve Jobs type American ideals with I, I'm the founder of a, a world's best company uh, yep. versus the comfort level of his homeland with uh, being that public and that well-renowned. And I think that's really hurt the company in a way. Um, but there's other factors that have hurt the company, like them feeling like it's a threat to the People's Bank of China. So long story short, I won't I won't go through the whole article. If you're interested, um, I highly recommend it. I'll put it on the Twitter at Skippy Doogles. Um, but just kind of fascinating piece that's been evolving for more than a year now. And now it's maybe turning into an investment opportunity, or maybe it's just something that is fun to watch from afar. It's definitely something to watch. And you you missed perhaps his greatest misstep. What's that? Dressing up and dancing like Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. No, that is that is probably his greatest misstep. I mean, if anyone's the king of anything, <laughs> right? Be, before LeBron, you got Michael. I don't even know what that's trying to say, but it's not positive. Put, put your... Uh, Put your little sequin gloves away, Mr. Ma. All right. I didn't, I wasn't even going to go there, but I'm reading a book right now called The Club. It's about English Premier League soccer. It's written by Joshua Robinson and Jonathan Clegg. Really fascinating piece of the business side of sports, but I, I'm taking it almost as an investing book. So, Dougals, I have a quiz for you. And then I have a fun fact about the King of Pop. Two quizzes. First is, who is the primary figure responsible for the explosion of the English Premier League uh, becoming the most profitable sports league in the world and the most watched sports league in the world? Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's Rupert Murdoch. Okay. So, I mean, that, that's like a real no, answer. Wait. I was trying to, I was like, how's he tying these things together? So <laughs> I'll get to Michael Jackson in a second. So basically, the English Premier League was, I mean, you go back to like the late 80s, some of the stadiums were falling down. They had standing room only. I mean, it was not comparable to the NFL in any way, shape, or form. They wouldn't even show live matches in Britain because they were worried people wouldn't come to the stadiums if it was on TV, everything else. Rupert Murdoch buys a new satellite dish provider called Sky. Um, it's Sky Sports Now. And no one was signing up for his satellite service. So basically, he needed to find a way to get subscribers. And because of that, he launched a massive bid that did a thousand, he paid a thousand times what they had been paying or something else. That number's wrong, but huge multiple. And then when he was able to build a successful business model around that, like everyone else came on board and they started selling, they sell into 200 markets now, all with three-year contracts. And, and it's this just multi, multi-billion dollar business. Uh, Manchester United is the most popular franchise in the world. Um, really, really fascinating background here. But that leads me to my second question for you. If you sum up all the salaries of uh, the 20 teams in the Premier League, they each have 25 players. Any guesses on what the aggregate um, salary figures of those players are? <laughs> like annual salary, you said, right? Annual, yeah. One year. Uh, I'd say $2.2 billion. Gosh, you're good. It, I mean, it's well north of a, a billion dollars. And to me, just to think about that is crazy. I don't know today's figure if it actually is two billion or what. You have royalty from the United Arab Emirates buying teams. You have Stan Kroenke. You have the world's richest people flock to this uh, league to spend money. 
And what's so crazy about that, when you go back to Rupert Murdoch, is now um, you have entire cities in London, or areas of London, that are completely revitalized based on the amount of spending that happened for some of these clubs. Or, you know, cities in Man- like Manchester is is nothing special in my eyes. They have uh, two of the premier brands in all the world as it relates to the world's most popular game. Fascinating book if you're interested. Well, thank you. I actually, I, I think I'm going to put that on the list. Thank you. Yeah, it's, Look it's, at you selling books, slinging. That's how I roll, man. What well, else you got? One more thing in the fishbowl, Dougals. Coinbase announced that they're going to buy, uh, purchase over $500 million in crypto. Put it on their balance sheet. Now, we've talked about other companies doing similar things. The most famous example here is MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor, taking out debt to do Bitcoin. And both you and I have concerns about that. The fun part about this uh, news in my eyes is Coinbase is in the business of selling crypto. So in a way, they're putting their money where their mouth is. The other fun piece about this is they're buying a wide range of cryptos, including Ethereum and other decentralized finance tools. So to my knowledge, they're the first company to buy like kind of a basket of cryptos rather than just Bitcoin. And I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, they're they're saying going forward they'll they'll invest ten percent of all their profits in uh, crypto. So is, is this a sorry to interrupt. Do you think this is kind of a trying to fuel the rising tide raises all ships type situation where they like they need the industry to have legitimacy and liquidity and all that stuff in order to survive. And if if they need to create them like further create the market, then so be it or something different. I mean, with Coinbase, I don't know that it is. You know, we, we've debated about that word need in the past as it relates to investing, yeah. right? I don't think they need it, but I do think Brian Armstrong, who's the founder, felt like crypto has a positive, can have a positive impact on the world. He, he runs a nonprofit called Give Crypto, which I think is pretty cool. And he sees the optimistic side of this space, and then he's just kind of putting his money where his mouth is. He founded Coinbase to try and make it easier to buy and sell crypto, and he took it public, and so far it's been a big success. So it, it's funny, because as critical as I w- was about Michael Saylor, and regardless of the outcome on that, I still think he had the wrong process in making that decision. Coinbase, I feel like, is doing it in a much more responsible way that says, this is our business. And the reason this is our business is because we're optimistic about it. And if we're optimistic about it, it makes sense for us to put our money where our mouth is and actually buy some of this stuff. This this is going to be a space. And I'm fascinated to and some of the points you brought up before to see where Coinbase specifically falls uh, in the international arena. I think they've they've gotten they got into Japan, I think, they recently. They just went to Japan, yeah. Right. Um, but I'm curious internationally because, as you've stated, like internationally, there are there are other organizations, right? Uh, whether that's government or otherwise, that might end up being more of the the holder exchange, whatever um, mm-hmm. of crypto. So it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting uh, uphill battle. I think I don't mean uphill even necessarily negatively. I just mean like it's early days, it's nascent, and so there's a lot to evolve in the space. But I'm fascinated to watch it. Yep, I think that's it, man. All right, as always. You can get a hold of us, skippydougals at gmail.com, at skippydougals on Twitter. Uh, Be sure to rate, review, follow, subscribe, depending on what service you use. Thank you for listening. Peace.